0: Where does that dead beer go? It comes here and lives forever. This is the Kosher Sommelier Podcast. I'm Andrew Breskin, the Kosher Sommelier. Each show, we will discover some of the amazing stories and personalities in the world of wine wine tasting, wine making, fine dining, and one of my favorite subjects, the wine business. So pour yourself a glass and enjoy the conversation. We're here. Um, san diego distillery we're gonna keep it casual today this is really fun um we're here with uh trent tilton the owner and head distiller and head everything head janitor head janitor bottler and uh (laughs) candlestick maker yes all all (laughs) the above uh san diego distillery and beautiful uh I mean, Spring Valley, Mm -hmm. Spring Valley, California, in San Diego, in
1: the county, in the county of San Diego, the
0: county general of San Diego. Um, We're not in the forest right now. It's not a waterfall that we're hearing. It's Mm -hmm. actually the beautiful sound of barrel-aged beer uh, flowing into the uh, distilling. Into, Tank. The, into the boiler. Into the boiler. That is the boiler. Yeah. I'm a little bit of an amateur when it comes to like. Well, that's the, why we'll go
1: over some of the terminology, the, the science and kind of, of, of what's going yeah. on
0: here. But this is a terrific space, and it's really neat to, um, to see this. The context. We just tasted some, um, some uh, passion fruit. Is it a
1: brandy? So technically yes, because anything for anything made from fruit will be in calling be called a brandy.
0: Okay. So we're having the distilled version of a passion fruit habanero wine
1: made by a local vintner
0: made locally that we that trent yesterday turned into this fantastic uh product that came out at about 170
1: 160
0: 170
1: ish yeah i gotta check the proof today we
0: watered it down to around 120 and it's just the most amazing <laughs> I've never had anything quite like it's it. It's fun. It
1: drinks really good for that proof too, huh? I mean, it's great. You would never
0: tell no. that it was 120 proof. Mm. I mean, it doesn't taste like that. Mm. That's just that's just crazy. Um, and then now, uh, Trent's kind of in the middle of filling up the uh, boiler with this um, that we just tasted—a um, 15% barrel-aged stout. A bourbon. It was
1: actually uh, aged in uh, Cutwater barrels. Who Cutwater is another local distillery here, right? It was aged in X Cutwater barrels for almost a year, and it is a, the technical style is a pastry stout. So okay. coffee and vanilla, um, huge stout, and man, it drinks it drinks really good as is. It's, I'm sad to see it not be released as a beer, but I'm extra happy that, that we're gonna be distilling this today.
0: Yeah, and that's pretty exciting because it's, it's really, the beer is made locally. Correct. And then it's, it's aged for what, a year? it was aged for a year in
1: it was aged for a year in the ex-cutwater barrels and then we're going to distill it and then it's going to age for probably an additional 2 to 3 years in our own barrels so it's like a totally like locally locally created Correct. and sourced product yes. and it's
0: it's really I mean that's really neat the life cycle of San Diego uh, alcohol
1: there's a there's a huge life cycle which I'm very proud to be a part of this scene that we work with so many breweries in town we're sitting by a lot of barrels that have you know some really famous brewery names on them you know carl strauss and uh coronado and um
0: i'm looking at bottle and, logic and, and, dark star and, and
1: bottle logic and uh there's some th- stuff from thorn and from hess down here and uh we work with the big brewing cl- uh, club cloth and we've worked with deft over on uh, over off Morena and so it, we all have this cool network together. It's really fun.
0: That's really neat. So, like, this is like the final expression for San Diego's beers is coming here and just turning into a product that can just last forever in its final form. Um, so, why don't you tell everybody um, how you got started? This is not your. I mean, you have a day job. The amount of Correct. time you put here makes it, you know, for a day and a half job. But
1: two, it's, it's well, it's two. It's two fifty-hour work weeks.
0: That's pretty wild. In a week. Have you yeah. have you manufactured the eighth day of the week to like No, but I really need one. <laughs> <laughs> I really need one. So you're you have a different day job and then how did you get into distilling and um this whole science?
1: So this all started back in the day that I was friends with chefs in the late nineties that wanted to learn how to homebrew and they we lived right by homebrew mart, right off Linda Vista Road. Oh yeah. So one day like with kind of a wild hair, they said, "Let's go learn how to homebrew and buy a homebrew kit." So we went out. I think it was like ninety-seven or ninety-eight. I wasn't even twenty-one at the time. They were—they were—they were older. They were three or four years older, so they were at least twenty-one. But there is no law about selling ingredients to <laughs> to, to, a, to a minor, which I always thought was kind of cool.
0: Well, it's just um, oats and malt and yeah, barley it's, just, it's and just barley and yeast, and you'd, be, you'd
1: have to have the process to get it together yeah. to make something. You know, then that, that it's illegal for you to drink. You
0: but, could be making <laughs> bread, you know. It's yeah, funny. yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. So we, we were we were making a whole bunch of a homebrew batches of beer back in like 98, 99. And then when I moved into to my own place, I started brewing a bunch kind of on my own. So that was like 2000, 2001, 2002. And so uh, right at that time I had met my wife and the beer scene was just starting to elevate around that time, you know, late 90s, early 2000s. Right. So we had been to every brewery at some point when it, when it hit to about 40 or 50 breweries and my wife and I were throwing throwing around the idea of opening a brewery at that time. But we're like, no way. It's never going to work. You know, there's, there's already 40 breweries, man. There's so many. Like, that's just never going to fly. And now I'm looking back, sitting here today. I was just talking to a friend this morning. We think there's 193
0: last check in the county, which is pretty intense. That's a lot. And, I mean, I, I would have also said maybe two or three years ago that we were at Maximum Brewery. Correct. But you know, I don't know.
1: We've had a string of closures here in the last, about the last year that I, th- I think are kind of kind of the turning point on what's going on. But either way, back in 06, 07, my wife and I realized nobody was really making whiskey in San Diego. You know, Ballast Point was distilling, you know, here and there. They were making their devil's share and their gin and their vodka, but nobody was really 100% focusing on whiskey. And nobody's especially doing like a craft like a craft variety of thing, Everybody was just trying to make stuff to get out to market for distribution. So my wife and I, we had the idea of, you know what? Let's just, let's take our brewing background and let's convert that into spirits. And we just slowly started to, you know, build a business plan and put this place together. And and now we are here with a huge set of, of, of spirits that we work with a ton of breweries in town. All of our core lineup is generally based upon beers. And now we distribute in a couple states and we have our first order going international uh, next week. Wow, where? Uh, to Australia.
0: Whoa. Yeah,
1: so super, super <laughs> stoked on all this.
0: That's crazy. Yeah. Um, so I guess you're, instead of going to the beer scene, you just want to become part of the life cycle of the beer scene.
1: It's cool because nobody ever wants me to say this, but you know, a lot of breweries, not a lot, but sometimes breweries make a bad beer. Right. And the worst thing to do that they should do is, is dump it down the drain when you can just, there's still alcohol in it. So why right. not distill it off and throw it into barrels for another year to three years and let that continue to live on? It's just, it's a waste of the resources.
0: Okay. That, I never thought about it that way. That's pretty wild. Sense. Distilling seems to me um, like you have to really know what you're doing or, I mean, there's less of a chance of killing yourself making beer or wine. But you can definitely, you know, kill yourself in, in, a, in a city neighborhood block if you don't really know how to distill. So how did you learn that whole pro- – I mean, first of all, am I wrong? And how did you learn that, that process? So it's, it's slightly
1: wrong but slightly also correct as well <laughs> because we are dealing with flammable vapors, right? So anything that comes off the of still generally comes off over what they call where the term proof came from, which is that at 57.3 or 1%. And the, the, ter- the term "proof" is back when they would, when uh, the English Navy would give a bunch of rum to their sailors as a stipend. They would check the proof by lighting it on fire to tell if it was proof that it was uh, acceptable to drink at that point. Oh, wow! Because only things above like that, like 114ish proof, light it on fire. Oh, wow! So that's where that whole term came from. So what happens is, anything over 114 proof is flammable. Clearly, when we're distilling between you know 140 and 180, or if you happen to be making a vodka, you're at 192. It's massively flammable. So, a lot of home distillers, which you know technically is not legal in um, the U.S., but there's a huge movement behind home distilling. Not saying I ever did it. Um, nobody ever actually home distills. That's a, that's a, that's a misnomer. Um, a lot of these guys run their boilers with fire. They run it with like a like they would when they would. Instead of, like, uh, boiling their beer, they would just put their... and and they So if you happen to have an air leak or a a lock, you can catch those fumes on fire. And, yes, you could have a very, very serious incident, which has happened and been documented.
0: Wow. Um, But isn't there also a thing like the first however much volume that comes off of this still is toxic? So
1: I like to kind of dispel this myth because a lot of this, this is all based around methanol. And that's what the very, very first stuff that comes off of steel is acetone and methanol, like below about 135 degrees. So it's the very first runnings. So it's easy to say, okay, I'm not going to drink this. So the, the amount of methanol that actually comes off during a distillation run, if you were to blend that in with the rest of the run that is still a good run, there's actually not enough methanol in it to have an issue. You'd have to be drinking a ton and ton of methanol and never follow up with any ethanol to have an issue. So you'd have to bottle that stuff straight. In order for it to have any and have of- a lot of it, yeah. and it's really not even pleasant to drink. I've put it on my tongue before, just to just cause I want to know what that flavor profile is right. like, and it just it it evaporates and sucks all the moisture out of your mouth. It's it's, it's very unique. Jeez, not- what what I think a lot of this what this a lot of this blindness came from is back in the day of all these all these guys who were doing things out in the woods and that kind of thing, is they were using equipment that had lead in it, ah, uh-huh. and that's where I think they were getting symptoms of lead poisoning versus methanol poisoning.
0: Interesting. Well, listen, why would you just break it down like distilling for dummies real quick? Just, I mean, for argument's sake, let's assume that winemaking is you take the wine, you take the grapes, you turn it into grape juice, um, uh, you let it ferment, there's a series of filtering and pouring off, and then it has a secondary fermentation, and then you have basically wine. Correct. Um, uh, Distilling is taking an existing alcohol product or or a product or a, a natural product that could turn into alcohol, getting it kind of halfway there and then turning it into a full on um, alcohol.
1: Well you always have to start with something that has alcohol alcohol that has been fermented that has alcohol in it. Okay. Um so just like whiskey is made from any type of grain, so barley, rye, rice, uh, so any grain becomes a whiskey. Right. Um, anything from fruit becomes brandy. Sugar source is a rum. And then anything distilled over 190 proof can become vodka. So that's where the distinctions for that come from. Uh-huh. So basically in distilling, all you're doing is bringing... The example I always use is, say you're at your house and, you are, uh, and you're boiling water. There's all that vapor that's coming off and going into your, in your kitchen, right? Yeah. All you're doing in distilling is collecting that vapor and turning it into the liquid that comes off. And the reason why you can do that is because ethanol separates from water at 173 degrees. So it's a much lower, so it's lower by about 40 points. So by slowly loading the still with this beer and bringing it up to a a close to boiling temperature, all of that vapor of that ethanol vapor is just gonna come off and we're just collecting that. That's how simple distilling actually is.
0: Okay, so this, so that, and, and there's a difference there between starting with a beer and starting with a grain. The grain, you've got to do something to it to turn it into. It's going to ferment for a certain, to a certain You have to mash it and ferment
1: it. And you would basically, like when I make our whiskeys, I'm basically making a beer sans hop and sans boiling.
0: Right, okay. That's all. Yeah. So this is going to go in the tank, and we can hear it dripping in right now. And it's almost at the point that you're going to want to shut it down or whatever. Yeah, Just in
1: just a second. We're getting close, but I'm also... I, Got to continue on with my Amaro tasting that I'm doing,
0: that I'm personally doing today as well. Sweet. <laughs> and then, so how long? I mean, like, practically speaking, because most people, including myself, never get to see this like in real life. But like, the beer's going in. You're going to fill it up. It's going to be full in about five, 10 minutes. Yep. And then you're going to turn on the boiler. Correct. It's going to get to a certain temperature. And then, as once it's stable that temperature, um, the still. Is going to collect those vapors and then condense them down into a different container. Correct. So then, basically, in minutes, you will have the distillate from this beer. In about, well, we do have to take, it's a little cold in here this
1: morning. What are we, about
0: high 50s, -hmm. low 60s? Yeah, it's definitely cooler today.
1: We've, We've got to take about 300 gallons of liquid to bring it up to boiling, which is no small task. and requires a massive amount of electricity from our lovely you know, provider that we have in, in yeah. California. Yeah, I bet it's not solar
0: in here <laughs> it, It's not cheap either. <laughs> um,
1: but yeah, so in about two hours, I'm thinking by about noon, uh, by about one o'clock, we should have some of the first runnings from, um, from this distillate. The boiler is actually running and starting to fire up and warm things up as we're dumping into it.
0: Right, but just from the point that it hits the temperature, The steam is going to rise, you will collect that, and that will be the. uh, That will
1: be our first runnings,
0: yes. Okay, well, and what's that going to clock at in terms of proof? My first runnings
1: always come off around 180 because I have a a unique distillation method where what I do is I call compression, where at the very top of the still where we're looking at, there's a bunch of windows that people can visualize a, a, a still. There's a big column on top of this pot, and there's a bunch of windows. And underneath each one of those windows, there's a plate. So the vapor travels through these plates and eventually goes to the very, very top to the piece. There's some, there's some copper uh, lines that go into it. It's called a deflegmator. It's a really cool word. That's a word I've never heard before. Deflegmator. Yeah. De-
0: deflegmator.
1: Yes. So that's a, it's basically a pre-condenser, which means so the vapor is going to travel up that column and it's going to hit that thing, which actually will then cool that vapor. So the vapor will travel up to the deflegmator and then it will condense and actually fall all the way back down on the pot. That's called reflux, if you've ever heard the term called a reflux still. Vapor goes up, condenses, I'm doing these cool hand motions you can't see on a a podcast, but vapor travels up, condenses, and drops all the way back down and it becomes this oval, this cycle that goes up and down. So by changing the amount of uh, water flow and or condensing power that goes to the deflagmator allows us to control the proof on the backside of this still. Uh So if we have more cooling power that goes to that, we run off at a higher proof. So we can run off between like 180 or 190. So all that really, really early temperature stuff that we talked about, I will take all that really nasty uh, 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 acetone and methanol, condense that down into a much smaller variant than you would on like a pot still that's more on like a bell curve style. Uh The way I distill is in multiple segments of a bell curve. So I'll like bell curve, all that very, very first stuff, and then our hearts is going to be like a massive, massive bell curve, right? and then our tails, we're going to run another shortened condensed, because I like tails, but I, I like them condensed, so we'll run a condensed variant of a bell curve also in that manner.
0: Um, okay, before I, I ask you, like just to, you know, we'll explain it again, but is there, a, is there a difference in the taste between what comes out in the very beginning? what comes out in the bulk in the middle of the curve, and then the stuff that happens at the very tail end. Correct.
1: There's 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 four segments, and we can dictate them by almost taste and aroma. First one is called four-shot, what we talked about, methanol and that stuff. We, we discard that. To be honest, it goes on my floor, and I mop with it. It's great. It cleans up everything. Because it's, wow. basically, it's basically acetone, right? Um, which is a byproduct of fermentation. All that stuff is a byproduct of fermentation. Next one we get to is called heads. That's when it gets to be like these different variants of acetyl alcohols that actually a lot of times they smell really good they smell really fruity Um, and if you blend some of those into your final spirit they age really well
0: Uh then
1: you get into the hearts which is what why it's called hearts because that's that super beautiful drinking component of of your run but because you are in like that pure vein of ethanol where the still sit, there's not a lot of flavor profile to it. There's still flavorful, but it doesn't have that big, massive flavor profile that a lot of people expect. And that's when you go into tails. So as you started to remove all of this alcohol, and by the time you get into the tails, maybe about 80% of the alcohol is removed. So what you're left with is say I have 300 gallons in here. I've already removed 20 gallons of alcohol. We still have We still have 280 gallons of the... Substrate that we used right which so when that's still coming off. That's all flavor But you start to get these different variants of alcohol that get these really large and unique tasting qualities about them
0: So the flavor gets bigger, but the variation gets bigger it gets bigger and weirder So it's really hard (laughs) to kind of you know, so it's a component of the final. It's not it's not a distillery's
1: house flavor profile comes generally from how much of the of the heads and the tails they use along with the hearts.
0: Uh-huh, interesting. I never thought about it that way. So is that are those tails also a product like, you know, just the, the gunk of the bacteria on the walls that kind of give this room its distinct character, or is that just a product of what's in the tank at that time? It can
1: be. I mean, we definitely have like a house bacteria that, we, that just naturally occurs in the air. We do do all of our fermentation, it's all open top. Ah. So yes, we add yeast, but we ferment for quite a long time for a distiller, which allows a lot of, uh, of natural yeast and bacteria to get in, which gives us some of our house flavor profile. Right. Um, but the way you generally run the still and the style of your still is generally what dictates kind of your house flavor profile. Right. A lot of our stuff, which, which, you know, we have all this beautiful stuff. We should at least try a couple of these things while we're talking about it. Right? Yeah,
0: definitely. I just want to ask you, um, so with the uh, with the uh, deflagmator, is that what it's called? Deflagmator. Deflagmator? Flag, flag. yeah. Deflagmator? was close. You're
1: very close. That's pretty close for... I think it actually has an A in it, too. It's a German word, I believe.
0: That's an AE? I think so. I think... Got some of those characters. <laughs> got some dot dots on top of the letters <laughs> and
1: whatever. Exactly.
0: So, the steam goes up, and then... It shoots it right back down.
1: If or if we're running if power to that, if, if you're
0: if you're powering that, yes. So after how many cycles, or how how does it know, or you can you tell it? I dictate that by controlling the amount of flow
1: to it. Uh huh. So as soon as we're done with that very very initial that initial junky stuff, I want to get us into like the real hearts. So I turn it off to start letting the power ultra to go down and that allows all the core spirit and the proof
0: to drop to get us into where we need to be right um okay so we've got here like a ton of uh different stuff to uh to discuss and talk about we had the um habanero passion fruit um brandy just now which is pretty incredible do i have any oh hand me the hand me the sample that we added the oh, agave yeah, one. but I added a touch of sugar to. Right, okay, so this is and our little bit brandy liqueur with the uh, passion fruit. That was oh, some man. raw agave syrup added to that. Oh man, it's good. It needs a little more water, but man, it drinks it drinks really well. I don't know. It, to me, it's well, pretty much well, right there. I
1: can't sell liqueur at like a hundred proof, you know. So,
0: I mean, drambuie and all those guys are drambuie is forty, um, but once you get into the, uh, I mean, main, my first my first thought always goes to. Um, like a rusty nail, with scotch, because it's I don't the, know a rusty nail. Uh, equal parts uh, scotch and drambuie.
1: Oh, with, I've it, never that, had that
0: orange twist or whatever. Okay. Yeah, that's that's my that's one of my go-tos. Yeah, you know. All right, sweet. Why don't we uh, why don't we get to work on some of these whiskeys that um, that you have?
1: So the first one I'm going to pour you is one of the first ideas. I'm going to pass that. Yeah. First things that we um, talked about in a in in our beer theme of stuff is um bourbon by law by federal law has to be at least 51% corn so what we did is we chose that minimum and then I also took my favorite beer in the world which is a Vienna lager uh, that uses a a huge portion of a malt called Vienna malt um, and we did 49% of that so we did a very unique beer based version of a bourbon using this huge bready toasty sweet style of malt and they crossed it with the corn.
0: So bourbon also has to be, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but in a freshly charred oak cask?
1: Bourbon has to be in new, and the, the. it's funny because the the law specifically does not state cask, it states container. And there's definitely been some interpretation about what people state a container is, but the general definition is considered cask.
0: Interesting. Um, so what I wanted to ask you was, Um, regarding the difference between tasting wine and tasting spirits what is your preferred way as an expert to really evaluate um, whiskey or any sort of a a spirit
1: okay so i'm going to bring us over i'm going to bring us over what do you have a water dropper down there i don't know okay let me let me grab you one real quick because my preferred method is to always use water and sensory 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 to me is real big like we talked about distilling and those different areas of of the the foreshot the heads the hearts the tails I can do an entire distillation run by not drinking a thing but doing it based 100% on aroma Mm -hmm. which is really kind of fun that's what I really like about spirits Um, so the very first thing I do is course is just like just like with anything else is always just just nose it where we have this really cool like mini like Glencairn glasses
0: yeah these are pretty small but really effective for
1: they concentrate aroma really heavily because there's such a small opening on the top which 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 is why i find these great glasses for especially for distilling because you can easily pick up if there's anything kind of weird
0: i'm getting a lot of like aside from oak but some like chocolate and and um, that honey even the honey doesn't have much of aroma but there's definitely a warmth this and particular batch, I think I get a lot of cherry on. There's definitely a fruitiness. This is um, 57%. Yeah, It's not drinking like something that's particularly high-proof. And it's not aged for that long in the barrel, is it?
1: This batch was about nine months. Our next batch coming out will be almost three and a half years.
0: So, I mean, for for <laughs> nine months in the barrel, I mean, this is like... It's tremendously elegant. We're we're
1: unique because, to me, I think that the chasing the numbers game of having to hit two years or straight or whatever, blah, 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 is fairly ridiculous. Because if something tastes super stellar at that time, then who cares the number behind it? And this was
0: one of those cast picks. And it's, I mean, in my experience with some of the um, really young whiskeys, it just tastes like a little bit um, like Lumberyard... Uh, wood polished type of a flavor, and people always
1: state uh, the green like fresh cut grass. You get this really like grass, like clean grass quality, that kind of stuff. Um, and we have that. We ha- we've had that in some of our really really early stuff. I mean, you can only beat father time so much when it comes to distilling. Um, but every now and then you come across a special barrel that's fairly young, and I have no qualms in releasing that.
0: Is it re- It's it's truly barrel by barrel, isn't it?
1: One hundred percent. We um, we have a membership club that we did. A, it was a really amazing tasting. I think we did 29 barrels side by side. Huh. And it was three different distillates that went into those barrels. So basically almost like 10 barrels each had the same distillate in them. Right. And they were all done back to back to back. It was kind of a cool study that I did a few years ago because we wanted to see what that effect was. And it was unbelievable what the differences were between barrels. People always say it's, you know, 60 to
0: 70% barrel is the flavoring in whiskey, and I I do not disagree with that. What do you think? I mean, what do you think it is like, you know, we're in a relatively small space, you know, the barrels are just, you know, they're right next to each other. It's not like, you know, you're in Kentucky and, like, there's this rickhouse and that rickhouse and the temperature variance, whatever. I mean, like, if everything is in the same, you know, definitely the same – kind of you know 20 feet apart from each other and 20 feet up and down too what what is it the we're unique in the sense that we use so many different size barrels we use
1: fives fives eights tens 12s 15s 23s 30s 53s and 59 gallon barrels so that said that's all different right however i really think this comes back down to a human element And, and or nature, just like we're dealing with yeast, which is, you know, we can only, humans can only control yeast and fermentation so much. Right. We try to guide it the right direction, but it never means it's going to hit that direction. Um, All these barrels are made from trees. And these trees grow in different areas. And one grows next to a stream and gets a different set of minerals. Another tree grows, you know, six feet away. And maybe an animal died there, you know, at some point. And it got a different set of minerals. All these different trees have all these different just like oh, as humans, they're all slightly different. Right. And then you take that into account. You cut these trees down. All of the wood is dry aged between two and three years in different pallets and this and that. So, right there, different bacteria and stuff will build up in this wood, in the wood. That's why they age the wood, uh, dry age the wood for so long. Then you build the barrel, and then you have to toast and char these barrels. That's all done by hand. Right. So, that's a whole other element. I've had barrels that are char three, char four, and char five, and I've had char three barrels that were more char than char fives just because of the human element because it's a human element they, and, and, and part of it i think is that wood is that that wood is how susceptible you know there are hard parts of a tree there are soft parts of a tree depending right. on where it's cut so what if a really really hard barrel that was meant to be a char five ends up you know on a char three and it doesn't even char that much but a super soft one that's really willing to light on fire right. just goes up in smoke
0: if There's there's an element that you can't you can't solve here. Wow, that's where the artistry comes from—the in, uh, in the aging and all that stuff. I mean, that's yeah, really—that's what I think. That's pretty wild. Um, this is—I mean, I'm not just trying to be nice. I mean, it's really this is really good. I mean, this is something you can just drink and not—I mean, it's a nine-month-old whiskey.
1: I'm really—I'm really much a fan of this. So, type. is
0: this—this this is your sauce? Fifty-one percent corn, forty-nine percent. Forty-nine percent
1: Vienna malt. Wow. Yes, this is what we make. I do do variants on this, but none of that ends up. Penny here, I'll release those as one-off variants. So I've done like bourbon with i've done a like a, a high rye style a kentucky style high rye bourbon right i've done a bourbon that was a uh, 25 oatmeal which is really fun oatmeal is a beautiful ingredient to work with in the whiskey world i really like it um and then we're getting ready to do a, a peated a peated bourbon for uh, as a kind of a contract gig for somebody fairly well known so we'll see how that goes
0: interesting yeah or is the uh can we like redistill all the stuff that we don't drink
1: well, I'll probably just I'll probably make a cocktail with it later. <laughs> 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 I, like I so said, that and that's the cool thing about this too. And it's like we talked about; nothing goes to waste. Right. It's all sanitary. It's all clean. That's true. You know, so it's all good. So um. All right. The next one we're gonna move on to is actually one of my favorites, and it's become one of our best sellers. Has this beaut and this pour pour whatever you feel free, um, is our rice whiskey. Our rice whiskey was very much. Uh, it was fashioned off two different rice whiskies I've had out of Japan. One called Fukano, the other one called Oishi. That were that were uh, brought into the U.S. by a friend of mine. And, right, those
0: are pretty big now.
1: Yeah, they were so inspirational on their flavor profile that I said, you know what, I, I I gotta make I gotta make something like this. So we started making rice whiskey out of white and brown rice, and it's like the most delicate, like floral, really beautiful, just style. Um, of whiskey and it just i some people some people have i found have haven't liked it because i think the flavor profile has this slight like sake style you know rice underpinning and they're not used to it
0: so i'm i'm tasting this it's really um, what is the proof on this one
1: 112
0: okay so mm. this is the same as the um, basically the same as the, the previous one it doesn't have the fruitiness I, I don't know if I would I would have guessed that sake flavor that you were saying until you said something, mm. which is that happens all the time to me with wine. Like yeah, you, know, yeah. you say, you taste the green apple, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden you taste the green apple, and yes, even yes, though you're yes. having like a cabernet. <laughs> you know, it's like you know, but it's definitely it's got it's got some nice spice and some kind of punchiness to it oh. that it's very floral. I think it's
1: very floral. So. Yeah, that, that's one of our house kind of flavor profiles is, is floral is, is kind of across our range. Yeah. Floral fr- floral and fruity is kind of across our range. And that's from the heads? No, a lot of... So it can be from heads, but... Sam, um, I'm getting the lingo down. You, you are. You're, 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 you're nailing it. Um, a lot of this is actually based upon our yeast and our fermentation temperature. Uh, if anybody has a, a beer or a wine uh, background, most people realize that things generally ferment cleanest, as in for flavor profile between like, depending on what you're dealing, between 65, maybe 70, 72 degrees. We ferment over 100 a lot.
0: Your rice and your oats and Mm -hmm. whatever you're doing. Anything
1: we make in-house ferments between like 95 and 110 degrees, which is a very, very large, uh, it's a very high uh, fermentation temperature. It stresses the yeast out and they throw off a lot of off flavors. But to me... Uh, Those are off flavors that I enjoy when it comes to distilling because we do get this big fruity floral quality and the substrate I think always comes through pretty well too.
0: This is really special. This is really special. (laughs) And this is also what, nine months or so?
1: No, that stuff's two years plus. Almost everything else we're going to have now is almost two years old.
0: Okay. Wow.
1: That's really... I'm actually out of all this stuff that was like only six
0: months because we've sat on stuff for so long. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So wait, just back to the tasting, like when I, when I sip it, what do oh, you do? Oh,
1: so we didn't even get, so we didn't, yeah, we didn't even finish. That's right. So you always smell, you always smell, I smell mouth open and mouth closed. I did them back to back and will a lot of times then revert back because you will get different characteristics because you're blending in different portions of air and different quality. Cause when you do have your nosing glass and you're breathing mouth open, you're also still getting some of it also through your mouth as well, and you get a different blend of it.
0: Wow. Okay. So. So we're all like a bunch of mouth breathers right now trying to do this? Yeah. So that's why we're all like making a ton of noise. It's not natural to breathe through your mouth and your nose at, at the same, same time. time. Yeah. You no, know, It's really goofy. That, um, it's not. Yeah. So the secondary thing in this
1: is a lot of, of, of whiskey people and master tasters, which I, I hate that word, master, because I don't <laughs> think anybody's a master of anything. Um, is they always say never to swirl because in the alcohol world, especially dealing with high-proof stuff, when you swirl, you're actually just causing more vapor to come off, which I don't have a problem with. Right. I like that because then I'll get more. If anything else is coming off faster, means I'm going to get more of the aroma coming off.
0: If you, if more vapor comes out of the glass, that affects was left in the glass? Because no. No? It's not enough to make a difference. It's
1: minuscule, but...
0: Right. To me, I want to smell that,
1: so I'll, I'll, I'll swirl and swirl and swirl. So, you're, so you do swirl, or you I, could swirl. I, I suggest that people to swirl. There are other places who will say never, ever swirl whiskey, which I don't. You know, if you're in a massive glass, I'm holding up a, a, like a big rocks glass that has an opening like four inches. You know, if we put a, a quarter of an ounce in a four-inch wide opening glass, yeah, if you were to swirl this, you're going to get hit with this massive quantity because there's so much more surface area. Right. But in a, little, in a little glass like this little glen,
0: no, you get a touch more, I think, touch more on the aroma. Okay, so nosing, we have two ways of nosing. We have uh, mouth open, mouth closed, mm-hmm. and then we're smelling for flavors. We're trying to narrow down maybe what we're tasting, um, and then... And you take a tiny sip. A tiny sip, then... It just flows over the palate you swallow.
1: I know. So I almost do it the very first sip. Every time I try anything new, right, we're talking like real, real tasting.
0: Okay. I do
1: barely just enough to get on your tongue. Like we're talking three or four drops. Like you shouldn't even feel it. You almost shouldn't even feel it going down your throat. Like you should have like, so not that there's no burn, but you shouldn't be getting a burn in the first place because right. you shouldn't have you, you shouldn't have had enough to get there.
0: Okay. So you just get to drop that just enough to dissolve. Kind of
1: kind of acclimates. Right. Right. Next one, you take a larger sip where you have enough to get on your on the top of your mouth, on your palate, on, on back of your throat, but still not really enough. Maybe a tiny bit goes down your throat, and um, that's when you'll then you'll start to engage kind of the other parts of your you know your side palate, back palate, mid tongue, front tongue. The next time you do this, I take a larger sip, and you'll get a little more that you can actually swallow to then then really see if you have any type of. of burn or issue going down. Like, this is what I do for anything objective when I'm trying to drink something.
0: So the, it's, I think I remember from a mutual friend of ours who mentioned this process to me at one point, but uh, the whole point, you want to have two sips just to basically acclimate your palate and your mouth to just kind of get in the same frequency as the spirit. Correct. Because this is
1: high, I mean, cast drink stuff is not what a lot of people are used to. Right. Most people are used to drinking, like we just talked about, low, low proof, stuff at, you know, 70 or 80% or at 90 or and that's going from that to something that's 120 or 100 we're going to have something that's 135 I think today. Right. Um, yeah, it's a big change. Especially depending on what you just ate. Your what you previously ate when you last brushed your teeth, you know, did you even brush your teeth? All that plays a, a part on your palate and how you're going to taste in the morning.
0: Is there is there a um, as dramatic of a issue with food pairing with spirits as with wine? It's harder. Is it more forgiving or less forgiving? Less forgiving. Less forgiving. Mhm.
1: Because the food can really, like... Food can change things a lot.
0: So, like, if you have, like, carne asada tacos with, you know, some stinky salsa, that's going to mess you over for this kind of
1: Because you can't... You have to move a lot of spice from, from food, which sucks because spicy food's one of my favorite genres because as soon as you start adding the spice level in, it destroys your receptors that are the ones that are when you're drinking high-proof whiskey. Right. It's that same kind of feel on stuff so pairings are really really difficult and that's why a lot of places don't do spirit and um, pairings they do they're
0: kind of they're kind of dumbed down right so what do you what do you recommend with again like we're not talking about like if you're just getting like your uh, off the shelf 40% whiskey or whatever you want to have a cocktail but if you want to actually appreciate the flavor of cast strength spirits or any sort of a nuanced aged whiskey or, or equivalent what do you like to pair with those kinds of things
1: so that's a it's a really good question because i've i've done research on this for years because we're getting ready to now start doing a couple pairing dinners here in town and i'm trying to look for ways to do this um the bourbon goes really so we talked about spice i mean spices and like hot spice right it's almost out of the question i feel for when you're doing a, a pairing dinner unless it's a dessert and you have something really sweet you can do with it with a spicy kind of dessert Right. Um, our bourbon goes really really well with really spice style foods such as like a really nice beautiful curry like a you know a butter style that Interesting. kind of thing because that really big bold wooded tannin flavor profile goes really well with that because the curry is big and strong too but they're very complementary.
0: so it's okay to pair with Big seasoning, just maybe not not spice,
1: uh-huh. uh, hot spice seasoning. But big seasoning goes really well because the the high proof on this will cut a lot of that kind of stuff as well.
0: What about like rich foods?
1: So then we're gonna move on. Those are next. Uh huh. Um, rice. This rice whiskey is so delicate and so light. It sounds super cheesy, but this goes really great with like a with a Chinese dishes um you know with like a nice like a uh, chicken and broccoli you know in like a white sauce or uh. even sushi or that kind of stuff just because both cuz sushi is so light and delicate as well you don't want anything to overwhelm that either
0: i can see this as some sort of like a rich soup or one of those you know bone broth based uh Asian soups um, with egg or something even if you're just drinking
1: and hang out with friends um those rolls in the clear wrappers like with shrimp and chicken and pork and stuff in them, you know, like from a Vietnamese place. Mm-hmm. Um, so I see our rice with a lot of that. I, Cause I don't want to call it bland. Cause I never think it's bland, but it's a lot of times a lot of Asian food is less. It's not, this no, it's not, it's not the one I'm looking for. It's, um, it's really complex and flavoring,
0: but it's not a lot of. It's hard to describe. I don't yeah. know where I'm going with that. It's, I mean, the, the ingredients are pretty, uh, you know... They're, they're clean and they're true yeah. they're true to right. character. They're right. fresh. That's yeah. that's what I'm looking at. like
1: Because right. in Asian food, you don't need a ton of stuff to make it taste really good because they're doing such nice, well-rounded right. food. And I think that's why the rice also works really, really well in that vein. Right. The next one we're getting to is savory. Okay. And you're talking about big, rich food. This is where we go into, like, osabuko and... Lamb, uh, you know, lamb, lamb chops, or even a huge rack of lamb, or a massive steak.
0: So we're looking at San Diego Distillery single malt.
1: So, single malt to me is a misnomer because we take this term from the Scottish world that single malt means that it was that it was barley uh, from one distillery. So it was right. a single malt, as in like single distillery.
0: Right.
1: However, our single malt is based upon a Russian Imperial Stout. So it actually uses seven different styles of malt. Uh, this was aged in new oak for anywhere between uh, one and a half to two years. And then all of that, is, uh, there's many barrels that are blended together. And then this is Solera aged through an ex-white uh, wine uh, Chardonnay French oak barrel uh, for almost another year. Wow. Okay. So this is a two-year-old plus French oak aged Solera Chardonnay Russian Imperial Stout distillate.
0: So it's <laughs> okay. So it's like a San Diego take on a Scotch finish in a wine cask. Correct. Except there's no barley in it, except for what came from the beer. No, this is all barley. Right.
1: So this was, a, but but uh, this was a this was a this was a a, a beer that we brew in house. So we do make this 100% in house. So this didn't come from any other distillery or anything else. And oh, and to add on this one, whoa. This also has some Amontillado uh, character on it as well, from, from, from some stuff that aged in an Amontillado cask. Interesting. So this is like a big conglomerate of a slew of different Is that where processes the color comes from? It's a, really, it's
0: a really deep color.
1: Uh, that, that came from the New Oak, because it sat so long in New Oak as well, and then it went to the French Oak to mellow. So
0: first you made a beer. Sand Tops. And then you made... Then we distilled it. And then you put it in a wine cask. And then when it went to New Oak... And oh, then you put in a new oak for
1: two years. And it years. sat for new oak for like a year, to between like a year and two years, because this is a blend of different casks. I guess right. if we talk about picking casks, I don't right. care about the age. Right. So there's probably six to eight different casks that went into this blend, and then it went into an ex-Chardonnay French oak barrel.
0: And then where did the Amontillado come in?
1: Oh, uh, that was one of the casks that I had seasoned, one of the new casks that I had seasoned with Amontillado.
0: Wow. Okay.
1: So that's where that's where this gets really complex when it comes to blending. Wow,
0: that's <laughs> that's pretty good. This is really, really, really strong. It's this got one. a intense. I mean, the new oak I think really shines through on this one. I'm not such like, a new oak guy, but I can really appreciate like
1: this one's 123 proof. So it is a big, stinking, massive proof. Anything over to me over 120 is when you start to get in the in kind of the the big boy numbers. You know, um, that be prepared that this is going to be uh, that this is going to be intense. This is really intense and it, this is why this you were talking about this will hold up to almost anything that you throw with this in a food pairing right and this is this is my meat pairing with uh whiskey this is this is a this is a beautiful skirt steak or a big chunk of lamb or oh a, a big osso buco, and you're pulling you're pulling the uh, out of the bone you know you're pulling the um
0: it, it they can stand oh. up to the richness i mean yes. there's a lot there's a lot going on this here. is a
1: can we, and this is made with seven different styles of grain two row vienna black roasted special b chocolate and brown malts and all the, the last half of those malts i all listed were all what they consider in the broom world adjunct malts that are off just flavor malts uh-huh and that's why this thing is a massive bomb of wow. of insanity
0: i couldn't have put it a different way that was better <laughs> than that that's wild okay wow that's really impressive so we have we have two more we have okay. two more to go through
1: um, yeah, so save save your save your drama so we can get home. So Luckily, I'm going to be here all day, so I'm okay.
0: <laughs> and the next um, one is... Uh, so the next
1: one is called Oat Smoke, which is along the same lines. This is another... This was a specialty whiskey we made about two years ago. I believe this cask is two and a half years old, I believe, at this point. Is yeah, it's 30 months. It was 30 months, yeah, yeah. So okay. this New was... We, we built the blend for this, for this one. This is a distilled Russian Imperial Oatmeal Stout with about 15% peat-smoked barley. So what we're doing is we're taking the last whiskey that we had had that had no smoke in it, but was still a hugely rich flavor and actually trying to make that even worse. <laughs> so this might, the oatmeal has this beautiful, silky, smooth quality to it. But then the peat is like this big, like the big, like aggressive brother on the back end that comes through and just plows through the rest of this whiskey. So there's chocolate and there's silk and there's smoke and there's
0: all this. I call this a drama whiskey. You know, I, I'm listening to you describe it and that's exactly what I'm experiencing. But let me just get it straight. So um, this is only 15% peated uh, whiskey. Yes. Okay. So.
1: Fifteen percent pita barley. Yeah.
0: So the barley, you, fermented the barley here.
1: Yeah, we did this ferment hundred percent here. Correct. Okay.
0: And the beer is also your own beer.
1: Oh, uh, this was a recipe that we kind of that we kind of worked on with with somebody else, but that's that's a different story for okay. a different for a different time.
0: Interesting. Okay. But yeah, this
1: was all this was made a hundred percent in this was well in our old facility, but same still same everything.
0: Yeah. That's really cool. So it's it's a combination of fermenting your own grain. And using an already fermented product like the beer.
1: No, there was nothing fermented. No, there was no, the we mash and ferment this ourselves. There's right. no, there no beer in this. Oh, uh, Okay, this is basically a, a beer recipe. This is basically like a this is basically like a smoked stout beer recipe, is what this is. Oh wow! That we made here in house.
0: Okay, so you make the you you do the process. And pardon me for sounding like an idiot, but you do the process as if you were making a beer. And then you ferment
1: it. 100% correct. Boom. Okay. So like 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 stone smoked porter,
0: this is more of a smoked stout. Aha. Yeah, that's
1: all. Wow.
0: This is also like really... It's got like a lot of stuff going on here. So
1: now this is our... This is the oldest peat we've put out at this point. I call it peat affectionately, but it's not P-E-T-E, you know, P-E-A-T. Um... This is a big stinking pour. The proof's pretty reasonable. I think it's around 120. Does that bottle say? This one says 114. Okay, this was a this was a lower variant, Um, but this is 100% peat, so it's no joke. Uh, With our distillation method, we'd never gotten it to we we distill in a really unique manner as well that we call we distill on grain. In a lot of the distilling world, what happens is they will they will mash a beer which means all the grain is there and they mix it with water right and they take off all the liquid and they ferment that out just like you would make a beer. They do that in Scotland and Ireland and everything else. We have a unique method that what we do is we mash on grain of course because that's how we convert the starch to sugar. We pump all of that into a fermenter so it ferments, on grain so all the grain is still in there at the same time and then when that's done we pump all of that out into the still and we distill on the grain so all the grain is in
0: the still during distillation so usually you said they you you, you cook the grain and you ferment it and then you pour it off and then you and then you just distill the. Liquid? yes most
1: most uh distilleries in the world only distill I call it clear, but they distill clear liquid, not right. with no solids. Right. But we distill it with all the solids. Wow. And the reason why is because we get all that extra flavor. Partly like why we we're talking about like Hawaii bit whiskeys have like such that big aroma, like that single malt and that oat smoke that we just had. They're massive pores because we've we we distilled with all that grain in the still and all those flavors. I relate this back like, once again, we're back in our kitchen right. and we're making tomato soup and your whole freaking house smells amazing. Well, all of that is going to, all that grain and the stills also going to contribute to it being smelling and having more taste and more aroma and everything else.
0: So, um, wow. What's the best way to learn about tasting spirits besides the obvious, which is tasting spirits. But, you know, is it just practice or what do you think?
1: my best advice is to get to be good friends with you know your local bar that has a reasonable whiskey selection and just even if they just you know have bullet and four roses and you know or, or some, some some simple scotches McAllen 12 or whatever you know just go in and I tell people this they always think I'm crazy they go in and get a pour of bullet and go and get a pour of McAllen 12 and just buy them side by side you know right. sit there sit there if, if you don't own the bottles if you don't want to own the bottles um, go in it and see the difference between American whiskey and, you know, like we talked about drinking today and just doing that, you know, smelling it and aroma and what do you get on the flavor profile and go to your Macallan 12 and go back to back and just taste back and forth and, and train your palate on what different things taste like. I'm a big proponent of side-by-side tastings that aren't even in the same genre. Right. Or if you really want to be obnoxious, we have a shelf of like, I, if there's a new whiskey I see, I generally just buy it if it's something that seems really interesting. Um, we have almost 300 whiskeys in our collection, so if I'm cooking dinner, I'll tell my wife, "Go pick me something," and we do it totally blind, and she'll bring me a, a Glen Karen of it, and she goes, "Okay, what is this?" You know, and we just go through and taste things and smell and try to think about what is this that was
0: just given to me. So tasting blind, tasting with an open mind, mm-hmm. and not being afraid to, you know. It's funny because, like, you know, people, I think people are more, have more tendency to spend like 40 bucks on the bottle than to go to a bar and pay 12 or 15 for a pour. Like, psychologically, people are just kind of like, but it's a great investment because you can taste four or five different things for the price of one bottle in the store. And then you'll see. And you can tell what you like. Yeah. Yeah. And then more importantly, to learn why it is, I mean, over time, why it is that you don't like something. Correct. And that,
1: that's why I suggest even doing different uh, segments of the whiskey, you know, venue is just to see what, do you like bourbon? Do you like scotch? Right. You know, are you on the Japanese side? Do you like smoke? Do you not?
0: Right. You know? I mean, these are all really, um, really unique and enjoyable whiskeys that we tasted. And I know that you make a whole... Um, a line of brandy and some rums and all kinds of stuff, and you know the table here is covered with a bunch of modifiers and liqueurs that you're gonna yeah, be.
1: We only taste. We only tasted the tip of the iceberg today, man. Yeah, we got. A, a we had a lot, lot. more. To, we had a lot more to do.
0: There's a whole lot of work <laughs> that we've got uh, to come back for a, uh, a round two and get to work on. But, I mean, this is an amazing thing, and and what you've done here, and and you know, being at the uh, the tip of the spear for a San Diego distilling, I think is is a tremendous uh, achievement. Yeah. Thank regimen. you. Thank you. We're trying. And, uh, you know, I think that the whole the whole the whole alcohol community is going to be waiting to see what you guys come up with no pressure
1: i'm friends with everybody in the industry i love this industry and we we have some people who come by and go what are you guys working on today you know what's going on you know <laughs> right. you know they're, they're never they're never here saying anything but but their their actions speak a lot of their words so right. um i find that i found i find that very flattering and um but I'm the one that I never rest on my laurels. And, you know, we have an, a pretty insane set of spirits right now that right. you can taste. But, you know, next year, what I've got sitting in barrels, it's, you know, it's, it's going to be double this next year. That's awesome, dude. And the year behind that that I'm already working on, oh, my God. I mean, it's another it's another through-the-roof calendar year.
0: It's just, it's, it's a great luxury to be able to experiment and to, uh, if you have a, a vision of something, you know, you can just
1: do it. Yep. And you know, if it works... I'm, I'm very lucky to be in that uh, and that, uh, that I can not stress out about making the same thing over and over and over again, but I can make basically whatever I want and right. be able to put out a level a set of spirits that are like this. Because this doesn't exist in many places.
0: No. I mean, this is really tremendous. So, listen... Uh, we're all watching nervously the, uh, the still and waiting for those first drops of the uh, – Yeah, we are. I know. Waiting for the first drops of the uh, – what do you call that? Oh, that was something. We just heard a noise there.
1: No, so that's just the still. Um, <laughs> there, there's pressures that are always changing internally and externally on that, and there's a bunch of valves and stuff that, that do that. So that's what – so someone's heating up. And we might be getting close, so.
0: Yeah, we're all watching uh, patiently as his first drops of, what do you call that, white dog?
1: Yeah, the the white dog coming out. White
0: dog coming out into a carboy that's uh, precariously perched on an empty barrel. Yeah. And uh, we will uh, let you get back to your craft over here. Yeah, cool. Awesome, man. Thank you very much. Trent Tilton, really appreciate it. Head distiller, San Diego distillery. Thanks for listening to the Kosher Sommelier Podcast. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram, where you can be part of the Kosher Sommelier community. That's Kosher, S-O-M-M. Until next time, cheers.